The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. It seems that just about everybody wants to build some kind of strength, physical strength, inner strength, moral strength. Here's what Hulda Wog ate powerlifting record holder has to say about that. I felt it straight away in my strength journey that getting stronger physically meant I had to become stronger mentally. The difference was huge. I controlled my emotions better and I was more capable to stand up for myself and others in situations where I had just felt unworthy before. The same thing happened when I went vegan. I felt so aligned with my emotions Standing my ground and living my beliefs made me mentally stronger, being true to myself. The mental aspect of strength is the biggest part of it all. To be stronger, you have to believe you can and that you are. The only regret that I have is not going vegan sooner. Hi, everybody. I am Victoria Moran, host of the Main Street Vegan Podcast, and I just love being inspired. I love it when people say things that make me think, yes, 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 it's true. I want to go lift something. And that quotation I actually found among many incredible stories and day-in-the-life lists and real insights into the world of champion vegan athletes written by a couple of champion vegan athletes, one of whom is with me today, and I just couldn't be happier than to be introducing my good friend, Robert Cheek, who, with the no-meat athlete, Matt Frazier, has written a, da-da, I wish we had sound effects, New York Times bestseller, The Plant-Based Athlete, a game-changing approach to peak performance. Dr. Michael Greger wrote their foreword. Of course he did. It's a fabulous book. 
Robert Cheek, who has been on the program before. <clears throat> if you like snooping through archives and listening to uh, goldie oldie interviews, he's been on a couple of times. And he is a champion vegan bodybuilder and the founder of Vegan Bodybuilding and Fitness. He lives with his wife and two rescued chihuahuas in Fort Collins, Colorado. And he has followed a plant-based diet for over two decades. Welcome, Robert Cheek. Thank you, Victoria. It is great to be with you here again for maybe my third appearance on the I show. I'm so. not sure exactly, but uh, <laughs> it's always a pleasure seeing you in person or being on the radio like today. Well, it's interesting how we have so many friends, I think all of us these days around the country and around the world, but we don't often see our friends as often as I think humans evolved <laughs> to see their friends. And when I see somebody like you that I just admire so much and I am just so fond of and happy we're in the world at the same time, it's a great, great gift. And I know it's going to be a gift to our listeners to hear from you. So first, just bring us up to date. I mean, you're a champion bodybuilder, but you've also done running. And, and I've been reading some stuff lately that it's almost impossible for people who are good at one of those things to be good at the other thing. Not impossible for you. So what have you been doing the past some years? Yeah, Victoria, I've been connecting the dots ahead of time. And that's what I've been doing my whole life. So if I wanted to be a great runner, I put in the work that was necessary in order to achieve that. And then when I followed my passion and got into lifting weights and becoming a bodybuilder and building that strength you talked about, and like that quote from Holda, who's a Icelandic uh, national powerlifting champion, uh, I wanted to represent veganism and, and stand up for animals and show that you can build muscle on a plant-based diet. And so I did that and became a champion bodybuilder. And I, I did those things, connecting the dots, putting in the workouts, making the most of the 1,440 minutes we have every day and being consistent and passionate. And then I also connected the dots with another goal of mine. Since I was eight years old in the third grade in Mrs. Young's class, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to write books and I worked at it and I worked at it and I worked at it. I worked at it in elementary school. I worked at it in high school with my own writing coach. I worked at it at community college. I worked at it when I worked on cruise ships and I worked and worked and worked and wrote thousands of pages. And then I ended up self-publishing four books, which then allowed me the opportunity to land a major agent, a major publisher, and now have this New York Times bestselling book and number one international bestseller with the plant-based athlete. But it really came, Victoria, it came from connecting the dots. Like what, what do I want to do in the world and what actions do I have to take to be that person that I want to be to make the impact that I want to have? And that's a question I ask myself every day. And that's what's gonna dictate whether I run or lift weights or eat healthy foods or not, or pursue traveling or make the time to write or spend time with family. Like I'm gonna make those decisions on a regular basis based on what is tugging at my heart at that moment. And so I'm just one person who's shown that yes, you can be a champion runner and then become a champion bodybuilder. And I'm in my 26th year now as a plant-based athlete, and I've put on 100 pounds from a 120-pound 15-year-old teenage vegan to a 220-pound 41-year-old champion bodybuilder. That's, that's all part of my journey, and it's just one of the stories that is in The Plant-Based Athlete, among with about you know, 50 others. 
Well, it, it's an amazing thing. So tell me, how did you and, and Matt connect to do this book together? You know what? I was actually looking back through some old photos, speaking of archives, and I found, uh, I think it was, what was it? It was September 11th, 2010 was the date on the photo. It was at the Washington, D.C. VegFest, the vegan festival at, I think, uh, Georgetown University or George Washington University, one of those locations. I was a featured speaker. Matt was in the audience. He was brand new to the vegan lifestyle. And actually, in fact, I don't think he was fully vegan because I later found out that he said that presentation that I gave, which was very much motivational, inspirational, tied in with veganism, of course, was one of the presentations that 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 inspired him to adopt a fully vegan lifestyle, which I did not know until a few years ago when he said it, when we were on a speaking panel together. I, I was not aware of that. But it was in September of, of uh, 2010 that he attended one of my talks. And I think I saw him wearing a No Meat Athlete shirt, and I'd heard of his blog, perhaps, and and we connected, and I invited him out for dinner. And he came, and I have that photo, too, about eight of us, eight or ten of us at dinner at a, I, at a soul food restaurant in Baltimore. It, it was probably that same week or that same trip. I, I'm not exactly sure. And then we just continued to develop this uh, relationship and became friends, and I remember staying at his house when his son was about one year old and, and now his son is 11 and he's a fantastic uh, plant-based athlete himself. And, and he's, uh, he's really an elite level athlete at age 11. But I remember him from when he was just, just a baby. And of course, uh, Matt's daughter, uh, I've known her since she was born and I've, I've traveled on tours for 15 years now. And I stay at Matt's house when I am in North Carolina and we have been speakers on the vegan cruise together numerous times in the Caribbean. And, you know, we just have this similar passion for lifting others up and for motivation and inspiration and leading by example and creating change within the world around us. And he focuses on endurance sports. I focus on strength sports. And so I figured that Matt would be the perfect co-author for this new book that I had had. I actually wrote a proposal for in 2013 and almost got a, a book deal with it. It uh, didn't work out, was on the back burner for about five years. And in 2018, I revisited the idea. I flew across the country to the East Coast, met with Matt in person, presented this idea of the plant-based athlete to him, telling the compelling stories of the world's greatest plant-based athletes in an evidence-based format. And he said, I'm in. And so we went to work and we spent the last two and a half years bringing this book to life. And now here we are on Saturday, June 19th. It was the 15th best-selling book in the world, ahead of Oprah Winfrey, ahead of Barack Obama, ahead of John Grisham, ahead of Dr. Seuss. Only 14 authors were selling more copies during that time. And it was an amazing feeling that, um, that connecting the dots brought us to that point. Wow, what an incredible story. Because you know I have confided this in you that the one item on my bucket list, if I don't do it before I leave this planet, if I don't achieve that, is to get a book on the New York Times bestseller list. And I've I've had some yeah, successful books. And I had one really successful book 
20 years ago with your publisher, uh, Harper One. Uh, It was called Creating a Charmed Life, and it just went crazy, but it didn't do the algorithms right, you know, for the New York Times list. So that's still been something there on the list. But one of the things that is so cool about having wonderful friends and loving your friends is you get to feel like it's yours too. Like, ooh, look, <laughs> look what Robert got. And so uh, I get to be happy too. So that's that's exciting and, and wonderful. So let's talk a little bit about being a plant-based athlete. So of all the kinds of people in the world that I can't imagine being them, it is an athlete. I can imagine being a politician. I can imagine being an astronaut. I can even imagine being a crook. (laughs) I can't imagine what it would be like to have the physical apparatus that could make one elite with one's body. And I have a feeling when you were a kid, you didn't feel that about yourself either. Tell us how it all came about. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question and comment uh, and observation. And one thing we like to encourage people, readers and and followers and those who discover our book and see that title in the the word athlete in the title is that we we really want to encourage people to identify as an athlete. You know, if you do yoga, if you go on dog walks, if you uh, are involved in gardening or, or movement of any type, that is a way to identify as an athlete. I think athlete is not reserved just for those who make the Olympics or those who do it professionally, but it's I mean, the, the countless millions of people who are involved in recreational sports or play an activity, a physical activity for the pure joy of it. They play tennis or golf or Frisbee or baseball or softball, or they run or cycle or swim, or they hike for the pure joy of it. And I would call those people athletes. I, I would say that if you are moving, if you are, are, are you know, elevating your activity level and, and your heart rate and you're burning calories, you are, uh, you're an athlete and you're certainly on your way to becoming a, a greater athlete. And it, it's not something that everyone identifies with right away, including, believe it or not, Victoria, some Olympic medalists and, and world champions and and other athlete champions did not identify as athletes either. Even in some cases, like Dotsie Bausch, who's an Olympic silver medalist in track cycling, did not even begin her sport until age 26. That is almost unheard of for making the Olympics and winning an Olympic medal. Most people start when they're three or four and they realize that they're gifted in athletics. They just tend to be better runners and and more athletically inclined. They can adapt to different sports. It doesn't matter if you throw them in volleyball or football or baseball or basketball. They'll just pick that up. They're just naturally gifted in that way, much like someone who's a singer or an artist or any other kind of particular skill that they're just they're just better at than a lot of other people. So Dotsie didn't start out that way. Uh, Orla Walsh didn't start out that way. In fact, in both of those cases, these are athletes in our book, Dotsie had an eating disorder. She was a a drug addict. She had suicide attempts. It was cycling that brought her out of that. Her therapist said, get on a bike, get some fresh air, exercise, try some movement to help overcome these issues with drug addiction, 
with, with suicidal thoughts and attempts and, and, and with uh, eating disorder. And that led to discovering, wow, I like this activity and I'm getting better at it the more I do it. And then she became a national champion and, and part of Team USA and eventually an Olympic medalist. And Orla Walsh, who's uh, from Ireland, also ironically, this is just really almost bizarre, in the same sport as DOTSI, which is not a popular sport, track cycling, started at the same age, age 26, had a past background of drinking and smoking and partying and eating junk food and staying up all night, and is now the national champion in the country of Ireland in her sport. She's the best in the entire country. And it, it's, they're just, they, they parallel so, so well. Uh, like one was a role model for the other, yet I don't even know if they know each other. But they're both some of the key athletes we wrote about in our book and incredible uh, female athlete representatives in the plant-based world, which we're so grateful to have. And, 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 and Josh Lajani, you may know him. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I think he was there perhaps in Sedona when I saw you in Sedona a few years ago. I think he was speaking there too. Here's he a guy. Yeah, here's a guy who, was, who grew up in, in the Louisiana Bayou and uh, eating all kinds of you know, rabbit and squirrel and and just this, this Southern Louisiana cuisine and was a big guy to begin with. Six foot three, 300 plus pounds, playing college football, got injured. And like many of us who get injured, and I've been injured a number of times as an athlete, you get depressed and you, you're frustrated. Um, yeah, you're, you're, you're frustrated, you gotta start over. And so he started some bad habits, lots of alcohol, uh, you know, drinking, eating all kinds of poor foods. And he put on another 100 pounds. And here he was, 420 pounds, and really, really not in in good shape for a long, healthy life. And he got inspired by, during Lent, to give up up meat. Uh, His his wife helped inspire him. And then he somehow, this is just crazy how the world works, he somehow stumbled upon Scott Jurek, not a football player, not a strength athlete, not a big guy, but one of the greatest endurance athletes the world has ever known. And Scott Jurek has been a plant-based athlete for decades. He was inspired by Scott and he started running and he dropped weight. He got down to 385 pounds and ran his first 10K. And it took him hours, took him hours to do something that I can do in 40 minutes, but he weighed almost 400 pounds. And later he dropped another 100 pounds, 285 pounds. Then he dropped another, you know, he did, kept dropping weight. And he got down to, he weighs less than I do. And he's three inches taller than me. He's 180 pounds and went on to not only run ultra marathons, ultra, I'm talking 50 miles, 100 miles, but he finished first. Here's a guy who was morbidly obese and on a fast track to a short life. And he not only transformed his entire life, a complete non-athlete, by the way, complete non-athlete after his football career and the injury and weighing 400 pounds, to an elite long-distance runner who inspired thousands of people through his weight loss journey. And you know who else he inspired, Victoria? Who? His immediate family lost 1,000 pounds. They, so his parents, his wife, his sister, they, they lost you know 200 pounds each, whatever they the case is a thousand pounds. And then one of his good friends from, you know, the swamps of Louisiana, who was also overweight, obese, unhealthy, n- noticed what he was doing. His, this entire life transformation, not just physical, but this 
entire psychological, mental, emotional transformation, being someone he never thought he could be. Uh, it, this inspired uh, his childhood friend to to want to be like him and, and ask him to see if they can work out together. And this is what I mean, Victoria. It's not it's not just people who have always been uh, athletically inclined or athletes from when they were children. There's an opportunity here for anyone to discover the the best version of themselves if they're willing to incorporate a plant-based diet into their lifestyle and set some meaningful goals and and work toward that. And a plant-based diet just helps with reducing inflammation and, and improving and increasing energy, helping with recovery, uh, adding more antioxidants, vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, nitric oxide into a diet. It, it helps reduce inflammation. It helps with a a, a nutrition to calorie ratio that helps oftentimes help someone lose weight and 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 just feel better, uh, have less soreness, have better blood flow, better circulation. These are these are why a plant-based diet goes well with athletics. It just it just helps the recovery process. And so those three examples of of Dotsie, Orla, and Josh are just some of the dozens and dozens and dozens of examples in our book. Well, well, that's why this book is so inspiring. You know, it's not just a lot of charts and graphs and here's what you do, although there's a lot of here's what you do, but it's packaged in all these amazing stories that just make people think like, wow, I could do that. So speaking of stories, uh, just tell us yours, Robert. I know you uh, you were once a rather small little boy. Yeah, I still have my health report card from eighth grade, so I would have been about 14 and I weighed 89 and a quarter pounds. And I, back then I had 20, 20 vision too, as I see in my health card, I, I certainly don't anymore, but, uh, I was always a small guy and I grew up on a farm. I raised animals. I sold animals at the County fair. I ate bacon. I drank milk because milk does a body good. That's what I was told from the television. And, but I was just a small guy. Uh, my sister, um, to this day weighs 99 pounds or a hundred pounds. Like we're just not that you were not that big in my family. And so here I was, you know, in eighth grade, about to go into high school, weighing 89 pounds, 89 and a quarter. And uh, I, I think I was about 100 pounds, a little bit over 100 by the time I got into high school, and wanting to be like He-Man or Captain Planet or Hulk Hogan. And it was as far from reality as it could possibly be. That just wasn't how I was built. I was built to be an endurance runner. And I discovered that in elementary school when we were asked to run the mile. And I had never competed in anything except for some recreational soccer as a third grader uh, on a team. And I discovered that I was one of the fastest in the school. And I thought, well, maybe I can be the fastest if I practice it. And so I did. And I was the fastest in elementary school and the fastest in middle school. And then I tried I tried to be the fastest and set a record in high school. I got close, didn't quite do it. I almost did. But I was I was always one of the fastest. And and I just wasn't built for building muscle. That just not in the cards for me, not genetically, not historically, not based on my actions or behavior, my sports interests. And then along the lines here, my older sister became vegetarian, probably at age 10 or something. And and then vegan as an early teenager. And she organized this animal rights event at our high school in 1995. And I was going to McDonald's and a place called Sandwich Express. I was eating meat every single day with my friends for lunch. And I decided out of respect for my older sister, 
I'm going to be vegan for a week, whatever that means. I don't even know what that means, but I'm going to give it a try. And so I went day one, December 8th, 1995. And I know the date it's documented. I still have videotapes uh, from a camcorder doing interviews from that exact day uh, about animal rights. And that's when I watched videos of factory farming and animal testing. I read literature. I listened to speakers. I had conversations about animal rights with others. This is before the internet. The internet came out a few months or about a year later uh, for public use. And this was just conversations with people and, and really like black and white PETA videos and, and uh, black and white literature. But it resonated with me. And that week of veganism has lasted something like 1300 weeks more than a quarter century. And two years later, as a senior in high school, I was organizing the animal rights event. Uh, my sister was two years older. So once she graduated, I, I kind of took over. And I dedicated the rest of my young life to promoting veganism. And that extended to being part of a group called Students for Peace Through Global Responsibility and starting recycling programs and composting and uh, animal rights awareness and giving presentations in high school about animal rights. And having conversations about that, it meant doing vegan bake sales and raising money to create more um, projects for the animal rights event that we were doing. And it meant protesting the local circus that came to town and, and the clear cutting of old growth forests, which were damaging habitats, of course, and, and taking down these long lived trees in, in my, my home state of Oregon. And it meant becoming an activist as a teenager. And so I did. And I, that involved also connecting and communicating with the physical edu physical education department at my high school, requesting that they get rubber and synthetic leather uh, basketballs and footballs and other sports equipment rather than leather-based, which I successfully was able to accomplish. These were all part of my early teenage years. And then I, I randomly, and, and really kind of mean randomly, discovered weightlifting and the sport of bodybuilding. And I thought if there's any possibility as a small guy at this point, weighing 120 pounds when I became vegan, if there's, if there's any possibility that I can get bigger and stronger without eating animal protein, this could inspire other people to do the same and it could change the world around me and make a difference for the farm animals on my farm and at our neighbor's house and other farms down the road and animals at large. And so I did. And over the years, as you know the story, Victoria, I, I did get bigger and stronger, and I became a champion bodybuilder, and then a champion bodybuilder again, and competed at the INBA Natural Bodybuilding World Championships 15 years ago in 2006. And I wrote, uh, I still have them, I wrote uh, articles about veganism for Flex Magazine, the, one of the biggest muscle magazines in the world, in 2001, 2002, 2003, those were all published, I still have them. And I started doing this before social media was around to be a platform to share ideas, I was doing it through magazines and through newspapers. And, and let's just, we have to stop here for our break because we're on a radio clock, just like in the old days. So hold that thought. And after these messages, we'll be back with more with Robert Cheek and the plant-based athlete.
Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Discover the power within Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. I hope you're all feeling just incredibly athletic and motivated and like your fitness goals and your sports goals are already closer because of this conversation that we are having with Robert Cheek. The book is The Plant-Based Athlete, A Game-Changing Approach to Peak Performance. What a dazzling subtitle, that. And you can uh, find out more about uh, what Robert is up to and Matt Frazier, his running uh, co-author at nomeatathlete.com. Just a couple of announcements. I always invite folks to visit MainStreetVegan.net. That's where I hang out, and you can find out more about what is going on there, notably Main Street Vegan Academy. If you would like to be certified as a vegan lifestyle coach and educator, we are about to do our 33rd cohort our 33rd main street vegan academy class coming up on zoom starting in late august so do check that out and i also want to give a shout out to our lovely sponsor and that is a supplement that lots of cool athletes take and lots of cool regular people too and these are the wonderful products of complement this is complement p-l-e-m-e-n-t you can find out more at love complement Com. These supplements are made by vegans for vegans, specifically formulated for the needs of those of us who are on a really good plant-based diet, but need just a little extra, which we pretty much all do. So lovecomplement.com. And if you find yourself making a purchase, when you see that discount box, just put Main Street in all caps into your discount box, and you'll get yourself a discount. So we had a cliffhanger after the first segment, and Robert was just continuing with the story of how he went from, well, 89 pounds at the beginning of the story to a great big bodybuilder. So please continue. Yeah, thanks, Victoria. It's It was one of those things where I was able to put on 100 pounds, which was really unheard of uh, on a plant-based diet. There wasn't something that people would expect to achieve and something that uh, not many people perhaps uh, did or have done, but it was something that I really wanted to do. I wanted to set this example that yes, you can build muscle without animal protein and especially so for doing it for so long, you know, for a quarter century now. It's not, it's not like I built a bunch of muscle 
and then became vegan later on. And that's totally fine if you do that, but that's just not my story. My story is that everything that I've built as far as muscle mass and size and bodybuilding championships and writing these books, which enabled me to tour and speak around the world, has been absolutely unequivocally a result of eating a plant-based diet and exercising. And that's really what we're really trying to communicate in our new book, The Plant-Based Athlete, that if you follow this approach and if you eat your favorite plant-based foods and if you eat a, a calorie intake that is requisite for what your specific goals are and you're consistent over time and combine it with some form of exercise, whatever that exercise is for you, that over time through consistency, you naturally adapt to your environment, your actions, you know, build this this new result for yourself. And, and therefore, anybody can become more athletically oriented and uh, adapt to greater levels of athletic success through consistency, through a, a great nutrition program, through goal setting, and of course, through uh, allowing patience and time to be part of it, knowing that things don't change overnight. Uh, as far as you don't you don't build muscle overnight, you don't go from a, a non-runner to a marathon runner overnight. These things take time, but they are a byproduct of consistent effort. And that's what I think is really the theme throughout the stories of the athletes in the book is that they put in this consistent effort time and time again, nutritionally, athletically, and over time, they saw their results change in ways that in many cases aligned with what their lifelong dreams had been and found a very, very fulfilling experience as a result. That's fascinating to me because, well, the Olympics are, are going on right now and you just think about what was the old TV show that talked about the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. It's like, it does seem like a lot of thrills and agony. And it's interesting to me to think about people who are so motivated to excel in a physical way that they'll be willing to do that. It's a different kind of uh, mindset, I think. Yeah, it, it is. And it, it is. And we don't expect everyone reading the book to be uh, an Olympic athlete or world champion athlete or, or an elite athlete. But we want you to be is a little bit closer to where you want to be. Most people would like to have a little bit more strength. They would like to have a little bit more endurance. They would like climbing stairs to be a little bit easier or going on on walks to be less painful on their joints or to be able to go for a jog with their child or grandchild or dog or companion or friend and, and not feel that fatigue or soreness that's going to last for days. That's what we're trying to get at. We're trying to get people to just get a little bit closer to where you want to go. But as far as being an elite athlete, it is a mindset thing. We have an entire chapter dedicated to that or entire section of the book dedicated to mindset because that is really the thing that separates these elite athletes from, from non-elite athletes, because you have to be willing to do the things that others aren't. It's much like, it's just like getting your PhD or achieving something else that most people won't. It's writing a, writing a best-selling book or a very successful book or making a film or documentary or becoming a doctor or whatever it is. It takes that extra effort and in sports, it just happens to be something physical. It just happens to be you have to make your body move in ways that most people would say, that's too taxing, that's too exhausting, that's too uncomfortable, that elicits too much pain, I'm not interested, I'll stick to something different. 
And athletes just say, that's what I love to do. And they go for it. That's so cool. So let's talk about something that these elite athletes have to do a lot. And I was interested in the stories in the book. You asked everybody, you know, what they eat, exactly how do they train? And then you also said, what do you do for recovery? And it varied quite a bit. But I think that even those of us who are just trying to be fit really need to understand what it takes to recover from exercise. So what does it take? Yeah, so it takes rest. It takes stretching. It takes some sort of uh, maybe heat or ice therapy. It could take sports massage therapy or chiropractic care, meditation. Uh, But really the key word is rest. That's the key word. So it means you don't build muscle uh, in the gym. You build muscle as a result of the rest and recovery. You've taken the amino acids, you've taken the adequate rest. And the work in the gym is the the breakdown period. You know, break down, make tears and muscle fibers, you damage muscle tissue, it creates that pain and soreness. And then you actually build through rest and recovery. So rest is the is the is the name of the game. That means you could take even taking naps or taking some downtime. And I think sometimes we we demonize that. We think that athletes are go, go, go nonstop. But no, they, I mean, they, they take naps before a workout or something or take naps before game day. Um, they allow rest and recovery to happen. They use things like sports massage therapy or even self-massage therapy or height, uh, sorry, ice and heat when, um, when others aren't willing to do that. But you basically have to allow your body some sort of rest to recover. And recovery is where you make progress. And, and the, so the better... The more like anti-inflammatory properties you can consume, ginger, turmeric, you know, leafy greens, antioxidant-rich fruits, things like that, and the more pro-inflammatory foods, primarily animal protein, refined oils, things like that, that you avoid, the better you're going to be. And then, of course, staying hydrated and, and getting adequate sleep. And that's, and that's really the, the common theme. People just find different ways to do recovery, but rest is the, is the, the core theme there. Well, that was interesting to see, you know, how everybody has their way of doing it. And something else that I found interesting that so many of these athletes talk about, and probably some of them do it and didn't happen to mention it, just about everybody said they had coffee in the morning. What's that all about? Yeah, I think, well, part of it, I think it's an addiction, to be honest. Uh, I've been caffeine free myself since 2018. And I was absolutely addicted to caffeine. I've never had coffee in my life, but yerba mate tea, I was drinking three or four bottles a day, 400 milligrams of caffeine a day. If I tried to go without it, like if I was on a vegan cruise and you know didn't have access to my favorite drinks, I would get headaches and I would have these withdrawal symptoms. And I thought, well, I'm a, I'm a speaker, a pre- presenter, I'm a I'm an athlete. I, I need to. I can't have a headache if I'm going to get a workout in. Or I'm, then I'm not going to, you know, be as far along as I want if I'm missing all these workouts from too lethargic. And so I, I put it off for years and years and years. But then I eventually went to a uh, basically a fasting retreat in in Florida, South Florida, um, and and that's what did it for me. I was away from caffeine for you know this this period of time, uh, this immersion program for maybe five days or so. And by the time I got home, I was able to stick with it. But I I, I will tell you, Victoria, it was really funny. Uh, despite being a champion runner and bodybuilder. I would be so tired sometimes from with caffeine withdrawals that I would just lie on the floor. I would just, you know, wake up, go about my day, check my email. And then I'm just tired. 
because I'm used to hundreds of milligrams of stimulant every day, I just lay on the floor. <laughs> and, and it took me months to get over that. Now, of course, I'm fine. So I honestly think, I, I don't know that it's a, I mean, it, it is, but absolutely a performance enhancer, um, caffeine. I mean, it makes you energized and more alert and all this stuff. But I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a drug and, and people are addicted to it. So I think, yes, these athletes use it because I think they work their bodies really hard and they are probably a little bit tired in the morning and coffee helps them start their day. And many of them also work out in the morning. And so it's just a natural, habitual thing. I'm going to energize myself before a workout. I did the same for years. I, I wouldn't even think about exercising unless I had my yerba mate tea with me. But uh, that's a mindset thing. It's a habit thing. And it's an, an addiction thing, quite frankly. And uh, for better or for worse, athletes use it, just like they use many other things, uh, protein powders and other things. Habitually, uh, they're addicted to it. It's part of their routine. They can't imagine life without it. But caffeine is just stronger than most. It's a, it's a real strong addiction. Most of the world is addicted to coffee or tea, and athletes are, are, are no different. And so I think that's really why. That's just It's just um, almost coincidental that if you – yes, the athletes in our book re- reference coffee, but if you were to interview 100 non-athletes, they would say the same thing. It, just, it starts their work day. It starts their you know taking care of their kids. or This is how people start their day. Yeah, it's that's true. And when – Everywhere. When you say it's all around the world, I've, I've traveled places where they don't have coffee, but they make the tea so thick and dark and strong to make sure you get all the caffeine that you would have gotten from coffee. So I want to ask you something specifically, Robert, about your sport of bodybuilding. We all know what bodybuilders look like when they are working out, when they are competing. But then we think about what happens to those bodies 10 years later, 20 years later? How much do you have to work out to just not be just in really bad shape after you've done all that building? Well, the hardest part, Victoria, is the, the mental aspect. And I can tell from firsthand experience, being a champion bodybuilder and then being injured and not training for five months at a time and even getting a little bit depressed as a result or simply changing interests. Even after I was a champion bodybuilder multiple times, I retired to get back into long distance running and then go on tour. And here I I was 195 pounds and now I'm down to 165. I look nothing like what I used to. And people sometimes comment on that, either in person or online or both, that you you don't look like you used to. You don't look like a bodybuilder. You don't, And, and that takes the emotional toll the feedback you get from others, but also comparing yourself to your prior self. It's very hard to maintain. I mean, a lot of bodybuilders become obese because they're used to eating so much, but they were also working out two two or three hours a day, five, six, seven days a week, and then they don't anymore. But they still have this mentality of, I still wanna be big and strong, and I wanna identify as this big, strong person, and so I'm gonna keep eating like that, and then they become obese, and they. In many cases, they have very life, uh, very short lifespans, unfortunately. Um, just uh, heart attacks, heart disease, organ failure, uh, bodies carrying around too much weight, too much dietary cholesterol, too much animal protein. These are all factors, and many bodybuilders pass in their 40s. Um, many don't make it to 50, and it's, un- it's very unfortunate. Uh, obviously, with a plant-based diet, I'm on a much healthier route, uh, much healthier course, but there's still that psychological aspect of of 
thinking back to who you used to be or what you used to look like. And I'm sure most people go through that. We go through it as we age or as we progress in, in our life and, and we go through these different stages. But I think for athletes, it's it's hyper hyper enforced because you are your own body's machine. Maybe it's different than uh, perhaps a singer or an artist or a writer or, or, or something else, but you, you literally can't perform the way you used to. You get to a point where you physically are not as fast. You're physically not as strong. You physically can't burn fat as efficiently as you used to. You're just not the same physically. And that is the hardest part. And I've seen it throughout bodybuilding. I've seen it throughout many sports. I'm experiencing it myself in my early 40s now where I'm just not the same as I was in my 20s. I accumulate body fat a lot faster now. It's harder for me to burn body fat. I'm, I, I've, I've gone on record saying I, I at many times at age 40, I feel like I'm in the best shape of my life. But, but also I, I, I recognize other things where I've just, I'm just slower at, um, at burning fat or, or at achieving a very specific physical outcome. As I get a little bit older, it, just, it does change. Even if I'm still in some of the best shape I've ever been in as of, you know, the last year or so, it just means I had to work a little bit harder and it didn't come as easy. So I, I think the, the, the retirement of an athlete, whether it's watching Michael Jordan decline or watching a lot of these Olympic athletes in their, their last go, you know, their, their last go round, you know, is they're, they're just they won't be able to do it again. They won't be able to do it four years from now. It's tough. It's that that's and that's for me one of the things I've struggled with the most is how do I transition from this identity and feeling comfortable in my own skin if I don't look like this representative that I built an image around? And how do I go from being bodybuilder to former bodybuilder to writer to speaker and leave a part of me behind that's been a, a huge part of my identity? And that's hard. And, and my wife notices that all the time. I was doing it just a few days ago. Uh, the stress of launching this book, I lost almost 20 pounds and I got recognized out in public and I, I immediately, you know, like prop up like a, like a rooster thinking I, I have to compensate or overcompensate or make up for this fact that I've lost muscle because I think someone's going to identify me as the champion bodybuilder I was 10 years ago, not the best-selling author I am today. That's the hardest part. And I, and I know a lot of other people go through that too. Well, thank you for that, that insight and that honesty. And we, we talked during the break that we would touch to before our, our time together has, has finished about something else that you have experienced in your life that a lot of people would not think that somebody who was a champion athlete and a very successful person in so many ways would have to deal with, and that's anxiety. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, it's it's something I haven't talked a lot about until really just recent months because it's been overwhelming for me to the point that sometimes I can't even talk. I can't even get words out. I have to cancel interviews or or the struggle to get through one is is so intense that I can barely get through the rest of the day. I, I just feel like I finished a four hour workout trying to do a 15 minute interview because the the anxiety is I can't breathe. I my chest tightens up. I can't get air out. People say, Robert, just take deep breaths. I'm like, I can't. You don't understand. I cannot get air. And it cuts off my ability to speak. And it's been um it's been it's been frustrating because 
I never had those issues before. And I just thought I, I had this naive approach that people just need to get over it or just deal with it, you know, as a weakness. And then something happened to me, Victoria, and I don't exactly know what. I, I still need to get myself checked into therapy and talk about it more. But something happened in 2015 where it just came out of nowhere. I had been on a speaking tour at that point for 10 years. I was all, often a class clown and one of the you know, most outgoing, extroverted people that, that anyone had ever met. I loved being on camera. I was you know, talkative and energetic and always in the spotlight and loved it. And then all of a sudden, I was working for Vega at the time. It was my final year with Vega. And I was doing like demos behind a booth. And all of a sudden, I couldn't even deal with people approaching me at a Whole Foods market. I just, I just froze at, behind the table as people would approach me. And I, I, then I, all of a sudden, I got to a point where I couldn't speak. And I thought I was sensitive to the, the smells and the perfumes and the soaps and shampoos and lotions in this area of the store that I was in. And uh, I eventually couldn't do my job anymore with Vega. I, I literally couldn't do it. I said, this is killing me. I was taking Benadryl all day long thinking I had allergies. Uh, it got so bad, Victoria. Uh, you know, we had these, these air purifiers. My, my, my tongue would get stuck to the roof of my mouth at night. I couldn't get enough air. That we actually moved. We, we left Colorado. We thought it had to do with the altitude, the elevation, the air quality. Something happened to me. So we moved, we packed up and went to Arizona, but it followed me and it followed me on our honeymoon to Alaska. It followed me to China. It followed me to the Caribbean. It wasn't the climate. It wasn't humidity. It wasn't the air. Um, and, and then it got to a point that it was, it was so, it was having such an impact that the quality of my life was deteriorating so much. I finally went to a doctor, which I just hadn't done in a long, long time. And we did blood work and we did IV stuff and iodine flush, which is a really bizarre experience. We did pulmonary tests. We did breathing exams. We, we did heart checks, EKGs, all this stuff. And the, all the labs came back, all the blood work, all the tests, all the exams. And the doctor said, Robert, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing. He said, the problem is above your neck. It's up here. He said, Robert, the problem is you have to be the best at everything. <laughs> he said, like, that's, you have this, he said, you are a, a, a high achiever. And he said, this is what happens to people who are high achievers in, in entertainment and music and sports and business, entrepreneurs, success, whatever. He said, you have this, this expectation that is so difficult to, to, to reach or or to maintain and and in a lot of ways i think he was right like i was i was always trying to be the best in the world at everything and you know throughout my life i i i'd found a lot of that success uh you know i was the world's most recognized vegan bodybuilder i, I did all these different things and and then i was struggling in my kind of retirement from bodybuilding and i don't know exactly what triggered this but it's still with me to this day. I mean, I didn't even know how this interview would go today. I did a podcast earlier today. I did not how that did not know how that was going to go. I don't know how a conversation is going to go with a cashier at the grocery store if I can even get the words out that I want to. I still struggle every day and uh, almost every day. There might be a few moments, a few days out of 365 out of the year that are okay. 
And I'm getting to a point now, especially after this book launch, which took such a toll on me and so much out of me that I think it is time that I have to do the things that I always thought were weaknesses. They were always thought they were weak, like to go seek help or seek therapy. And when my wife would suggest it, I resented it. When friends suggested it gently, I resented them. I got, I got, you know, upset, frustrated with them. But it, it's something that came out of nowhere and has impacted me so significantly in the last six years. And I've actually become a pretty introverted person. I don't talk a whole lot. I, st I st stay to myself. I'm very quiet in public situations. I don't know if I'm going to be able to have a conversation or not, or how what, what level of breathing I'll be able to do, what, how, what my comfort level will be like. And Victoria, I have to be honest, I never wanted to talk about it because I didn't want it to in any way harm the vegan aspect of my life. I didn't want to hurt animals. If people would say, oh, it's because you, you're vegan. You know, I've been, I've been vegan for 26 years now, and I spent the first 20 of those with no anxiety problems. In fact, I was a high achiever in so many ways and a champion athlete. But I still, in the back of my mind, thought people are going to criticize my diet, my lifestyle, and I can't do it. I can't talk about it. So I kept it quiet, and I had lots of awkward moments and conversations and silence and when I, I couldn't get through conversations because of my particular type of anxiety, performance anxiety that involves breathing and speaking. But the last year has been such a struggle and still ongoing that I decided it's time to open up about it. And so I, I have recently. And I realized that I've taken some classes about it. I took, I was put on multiple medications, which I don't take anymore. And now I'm looking into getting some therapy now that, uh, you know, the book launch is done and, and realize that 70% of the population has some sort of anxiety too. It's so true. And I'm so glad you're talking about it. And I'm glad you're talking about the thing that you didn't want to talk about it because you thought it would hurt the animals. I, I, it's people don't even want to say that they have a cold or, right. or if they have cancer or something, right. it's like, oh no, it'll, it will reflect poorly on veganism. You know, veganism isn't about superhumanness or immortality. Right. It's about compassion. Exactly. And you've shown so much compassion today for everybody listening to share your story with us. I know people are just relating and relating. And I would just love to have you back in a year and, and uh, tell us uh, where you are then. And as I just have seen you succeed and overcome so many times in your life, I'm sure there is uh, one more on the way there. And in the meantime, New York Times bestseller, The Plant-Based Athlete, A Game-Changing Approach to Peak Performance. Go ahead and buy it. Everybody else has. Thank you, Robert Cheek. Thank you, Unity Online Radio. And thank you, everybody, for spending this time with us. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you looking for help on your path to healing? I'm Lisa Campion. I'm a psychic, Reiki master, teacher, and energy healer. 
On my podcast, The Miracle of Healing, I'm going to help you on your healing path. Listen to conversations with leading teachers in energy medicine, quantum healing, and people who have recovered from loss and illness. Whether it's to take care of your own healing or to help other people, this is the podcast for you right here on mindbodyspirit.fm.